This episode is brought to you by Original Grain, the premier maker of wood and steel watches. With an unwavering commitment to authenticity, innovation, and next-level craftsmanship, Original Grain is a world-class creator of -of one-of-a-kind timepieces. Original Grain has some of the most unique watches you've ever seen, and it is kind of obviously a great gift for Father's Day. Each Original Grain watch tells a story. Like the New York Yankees watch, it's made from reclaimed wood from the 1923 Yankee Stadium wooden seats. That's a piece of history on your arm. I, however, did not get one of the wooden watches. I got a bright canary yellow watch with a gold face. It is, for me, perfect for summer. Uh, It also is not overly feminine looking. I actually really like watches that are there on your arm that don't try to disappear. Obviously, I wouldn't have gotten a canary yellow one if I wanted it to disappear. They do have like rose gold ones. They have ones that have that wood grain face, which is going to be very unique. Each piece is different. I, again, I just went my way. You go your way. That's the whole point of how like original these watches are. An original grain watch is the perfect gift for dad, like I said, or anyone in your life who appreciates quality, craftsmanship, and style. They start at just $169 with free shipping worldwide and easy returns. Plus, Original Grain plants a tree for each watch sold. They have planted over half a million trees so far. And I have a special deal for listeners. For a limited time only, you can save 30% off your order at OriginalGrain.com using the offer code FRIENDS. Some exclusions apply. See website for details. Original Grain watches are absolutely beautiful. They have incredible selection. They are stylish. They have, again, they have women's and men's. They have some alumni watches. They have some military-style watches, all different from your normal watch. So visit OriginalGrain.com to see for yourself and use the offer code FRIENDS at checkout to save 30% off your order. And we thank Original Grain for sponsoring this podcast. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to Conspiracy Month on With Friends Like These. There is an obvious reason why a political podcast might want to be talking about conspiracies for a month, and that's because we have a conspiracist-in-chief in the White House. We have a hostile foreign power that weaponized conspiracy theories in a presidential election. We have conspiracy theories breaking through into real life with people taking weapons into a pizza parlor to try and save the children they think are being enslaved there. Those are all really good reasons to be talking about conspiracy theories in this day and age. There's another good reason that might be less obvious, and that's that conspiracy theories are actually kind of normal. The more you learn about them as a phenomenon, the more you realize that, well, everyone believes in a conspiracy of some kind, although they may not think of it as a conspiracy theory. And also, you begin to realize that some of the conspiracies are true. One person's, like, fantastic idea is another person's history lesson. You may scoff at a Tea Party Patriots idea that the government is going to put dissenters into FEMA camps. But the American government has put plenty of people into camps. They're putting some people in camps right now. And how different is the idea that they're putting something in the water from the decades of experimentation on people of color that basically created modern medicine? A conspiracy theory can be the expression of anxiety by a person afraid of losing power, and they can be a description 
of how the powerful protect themselves. So our goal this month is not to point and laugh, though there will be some pointing and probably some laughing. It is to understand conspiracy theories. What are the conditions that prime people to believe in conspiracies? Why do certain kinds of conspiracy theories flourish? What can we learn about the truth from lies? So that is all this month, and it starts this week with two guests. Jesse Walker is the books editor at Reason Magazine, and he's also the author of The United States of Paranoia, which is about the history of conspiracy theories in the U.S., And also this week, friend of the pod, Parker Malloy, editor-at-large for Media Matters for America, and an expert on, well, the real conspiracy against trans people. Coming right up, Jesse and Parker. Jesse, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I am excited to talk to you. I followed your work for a long time uh, on reason and in general, uh, also about conspiracies. I, I consider you something of an expert on the subject. And I, I, my first question Thank is you. I, <laughs> something of maybe I should just say an expert. You are an expert. Um, and I guess my first question is just a, an overarching one, which is how did you get started? You know reporting on conspiracy theories like what is there something that happened (laughs) is there a particular thing that sparked your interest well i was interested in them before i was uh any kind of reporter so it was always something i was just kind of paying attention to in one way or another i mean that goes back to high school and i don't know if you want me to get into the biographical details of me you know discovering uh, conspiracy (laughs) books on the uh, shelves of the uh, local libraries uh, and all. But it was already something I was, um, I sort of had my eye on. And I guess I first wrote about it in the mid-90s. I mean, the uh, it was around the time of, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing, and there was, uh, you know, a lot of media interest in the topic. And I, I, I say the first time, I'm sure I wrote some articles that touched on it previous to then, you know, a book review or something. But, I mean, the... Um, Certainly the earliest uh, quotes in the United States of Paranoia that come from my own interviews are from like magazine writing I was doing back around 1995, 96, and was still drawing on uh, more than a decade, almost two decades later uh, when I was writing the book. So I, I, I gave you a chronological answer. I guess I didn't really answer the uh, the underlying question, though. Like, how, how did I find this interesting? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's... American culture, I mean, both in the present and American history, I mean, it's, it's, it's not just the events that happen. It's, it's all the things that people are imagining happening, you know? And you can give a fair... I mean, obviously, there's trouble giving even a, an objective account of who did what when. But, so, you know, it's at least uh, possible to, to conceive of, of um, doing that, you know, with... Uh, something like you know World War II, the Great Depression, and and so on. But part of the story has to be what all these different groups of people thought were going on, um, and all these sort of dueling, um, you know, uh, I don't want to just say mythologies because that makes it sound like it's all fictional. And, and a lot of what people think are, are going on, I'm not just talking about conspiracies here. Is just you know their perceptions of the world and their expectations. Um, um, but also, also you know, know what hidden forces they they see at work, work, whether they're political or spiritual. spiritual or um, on any, any number, number of options. So, so uh, to me, that's just part of the story, story and it often gets um, left out, you know. And so, so part of what I was trying to do with this book was to look at American history, 
um, through the prism of all these, not just uh, what was happening, but all these uh, imagined extra activities that were happening in people's minds, you know, and, and especially um, people's fears. Although I do have a chapter here on benevolent conspiracies too, so it's not just fear. We have to we have to cover that because I think that would I think. Some people might be surprised that the idea of a benevolent conspiracy, except maybe Santa Claus. I guess that's good benevolent right. conspiracy. But let's go back to this idea that there is like an American story about conspiracy theories. I know a little bit about what you've written. And it is true that basically conspiracies have been a part of American culture like since before there was an America. Right. Since before it was an independent country. Um, I start and I should I should just say at the beginning, I'm not claiming that America is more prone to conspiracy theories than other countries. Um, I don't even know how you would measure that <laughs> if you wanted to you know, put it on a scale, but we know about all kinds of conspiracy theories in the Middle East, in Russia, in Africa. So, But what I can say is that there is a distinctly American uh, style of conspiracy theories, or set of styles, I should say, a, a, a specific American history of things that we've been afraid of that overlaps with other people, other cultures, you know, and we're influenced by stories that come from abroad, um, but really reflects um, the circumstances that, you know, our ancestors and now us, you know, have lived through. So, and that begins the moment people um, start, you know, landing on these shores. I mean, I'm sure it begins before then. I, we don't have the written records to talk about what the American Indians conspiracy theories were like, um, but I'm certain they had some. Um, yes. But once uh, Europeans started showing up here, immediately they started imagining conspiracy theories among uh, the Indians uh, and among each other. Um, but I mean, one of the earliest um, stories I talk about in the book um, was this idea that the um, Satan had come to America first, to the New World first, um, as Christianity spread in Europe and he figured he was losing ground. He uh, allegedly came out here and he brought a bunch of pagans with them and set them up as the Indians and was manipulating their attacks on the settlers and so forth. And there was a sort of a grand uh, apocalyptic satanic narrative behind these, um, you know, these uh, you know, people lurking in the wilderness that the Puritans were looking at and seeing. Um, and you have that and you also have these sort of smaller scale conspiracies just, you know, fearing that Indians are about to attack, fearing that Indians are allying themselves with um, another tribe or another set of colonists. Uh, and so you have, like, then as now, you have both the big grand apocalyptic um, uh, conspiracy theories, you know, where, you know, a one dark force is striding across the world, um, you know, throwing, throwing its thunderbolts at everything, and these sort of smaller scale, sometimes plausible ones, just about plots that other human beings uh, might be conducting, and then these interplay in, in, in different ways. Um, so, if, if, for example, I, I, during the Salem um, witch trials, uh, which of course is famous as a conspiracy theory in, in itself, you know, the sort of fear that, uh, that these your neighbors and even family members might be secretly committing themselves uh, to, um, to the devil and, and, and worshiping him in secret covens and trying to work against the body politic, you also had uh, the idea that um, the witches were working in league uh, with um, the Indians and uh, French Canadians. And that had to do with very specific, you know, geopolitical relations between the British colonists in New England and uh, the French colonists not far away and all these different Indian nations. 
So, I mean, it's there at the very beginning, and it is in absolutely no sense something that started with, you know, QAnon and uh, the deep state mm-hmm. and Russia and all that. First of all, I want to acknowledge I have great and important, I think it is, to to say that there was somebody else here bef- before <laughs> the country was colonized. And maybe, yeah. probably, you know, Native American culture has its own set of of beliefs, conspiratorial or not. But it's also really important, I think, to point out this that how how largely these Native Americans figured, like you're saying, into these early conspiracy theories, because to me, that illuminates something that I feel like I've learned as we've dived into this, which is that I, I used to think that conspiracy theories were like the refuge of the powerless, like that it was something that you you believed in if you you were fearful, you know, like if you if you didn't understand the larger forces around you then you would maybe impose an, a force you would you would say it must be this thing that i can that is intelligible to me that's making these things happen but from hearing you talk about these early conspiracies it seems less like it these are powerless people or people being you know um taken advantage of that come up with the conspiracy theories but rather people that just aren't doing as well as they want to be doing. You have a long history of very powerful people believing in conspiracy yeah. theories. And in part, of course, that reflects the fact that nobody is as powerful as they want to be, and people see threats everywhere, um, sometimes real threats and often imagined ones. But, you know, these are not um, always, you know, the people who are at the bottom of the um, the, the social pecking order. And, and I, I think that um, the theory that... Um, conspiracy theories are, uh, are something that just sort of comes from the most powerless people. Like almost every uh, a thesis about conspiracy theories, that's true of some of them, but it's absolutely <laughs> not true of all of them. Um, so, and I, and I, um, one thing I do in the, in the book is I set up sort of five um, uh, sort of recurring uh, conspiracy narratives that come up in different forms or sort of structures for different uh, conspiracy stories. And, they're the enemy outside, the enemy below, the enemy above, um, the enemy within, and uh, the benevolent conspiracy. And you might notice from this test, I mean, the enemy above, that is people um, who are either powerless or relatively powerless. They might be sort of in the middle of society, but casting their eyes upwards, um, being nervous about um, elites and, and would-be elites. But those enemy below stories, that's the constant fear of people in power of uh, threats to their rule. I mean, whether it's um, the constant um, rumors of insurrectionary slave conspiracies that uh, were going throughout the antebellum South, um, and and actually, you know, for that matter, before uh, slavery was abolished in the North, in the North, uh, I I talk about in some detail about uh, some incidents in New York um, in the 18th century. Um, And and then continuing forward from there, uh, you know, up to, you know, fears about... um, Actually, I, I looked at some uh, stories about the urban riots of the 1960s and showed some, you know, direct parallels between those and some stories that had been told, you know, more than a century earlier um, about uh, alleged slave conspiracies. And it's uh, it's not a coincidence. You know, I mean, these 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 stories keep recurring and they get passed down and they mutate and they evolve, um, but they uh, they have deep roots. Um, so yeah, it's it's not just powerless people. Um, and, and and even beyond that, let me say, it's not just one group of people. Um, I, one sort of set of you know, writing about conspiracy theories that I don't care for is some people in the psychological literature 
try to come up with uh, they they come up with this idea of conspiracy ideation, a particular conspiracist way of thinking, and then they um, will try to you know draw conclusions about the people who show this form of thinking. Um, and I I think it's just much more widespread than that implies. Um, almost anyone who's not comatose um, is capable of believing in conspiracies and probably does so. Um, you'll, you'll see studies that say you know, more than half of Americans believe in at least one conspiracy theory, and those always understate it because what they really mean is more than half of Americans believe in one of the four or six conspiracy theories that we <laughs> asked about in this poll. But, you know, they, uh, and, and, and if you call people up and say, what conspiracy theories do you believe in, you're still not going to get a full count because lots of people don't think of what their conspiracies as conspiracy theories. This is especially true if it's a mainstream uh, conspiracy theory. If it were 1986 and you uh, and somebody believed um, wholeheartedly in the satanic panic that was going on then, this idea that there are these devil-worshipping cabals that were infiltrating daycare centers and molesting children in rituals and even in some versions of the story sacrificing children and, and disposing of their bodies— um, that person would probably not call that a conspiracy theory. They would t- say it's something they saw on 2020 um, because this was something that was embraced by the mainstream media and embraced by prosecutors and an awful lot of juries. People went to jail sometimes for very long periods of time for crimes that they not only did not do, but that never happened because of this moral panic that seized the country at that time. So, yeah, a conspiracy thinking is everywhere, not just among the, uh, you know, the, the fringy outskirts of society. It is interesting to me how often it it seems like in just the conspiracy theories we're talking about right now, how often the scapegoats of a conspiracy theory are the less powerful, like are the minorities. Like, is that is that a shape of conspiracy theories that that is continuous or is that are there conspiracy theories in which, you know, those I guess it would be impossible for conspiracy theory to exist in which those in power are the ones in power. Does that make sense? You can certainly believe that people who are in power are trying to seize more power or are trying to abuse the power in ways that are hidden. And that's sort of the classic form of an enemy above conspiracy theory. I mean, everybody knows that the CIA has power. (laughs) The question is, did the CIA use its power in this way? Or if you go back to, I mean, again, deep into history, like the lead up to the American Revolution, everybody knew the British crown had uh, power over the colonies. And that's why they were the colonies and not the independent states. Um, but the, uh, the uh, stories that were circulating, and I, I mean among people like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, um, about uh, the crown you know, plotting to take away liberties that the colonists enjoy and to uh, impose, uh, what's the phrase in the Declaration of Independence, uh, like absolute despotism or something like that. Um, I mean, that is uh, that becomes conspiratorial speculation. Um, and then you enter the question of, is it true or not? Um, but, but sure, absolutely, you can have these. But you're also true, it's also true, as you said, that you can have um, conspiracy theories about the powerless. Um, I mentioned the enemy below ones, um, but I also, the enemy outside conspiracy theories, which is about people not at the lower end of, of the uh, social ladder, but outside the community's gates. That's the form that the, um, the American Indian conspiracy theories took. Um, that's the form that, you know, conspiracy theories about immigrants today or, or, or about the fear of immigrants, you know, rushing in from the outside today um, will take and all sorts of different things in between, whether it's yellow peril theories at the end of the 19th century about, uh, you know, Asians, um, you know, th- uh, conspiracy theories about German saboteurs during World War One, and 
German saboteurs existed, um, but there were all sorts of very far out um, theories that went well beyond what anyone could prove. And so again, again, not only can anyone be, um, not only can anyone believe in a conspiracy theory, but anyone can be the star of a conspiracy theory. Um, it's less likely, obviously, if you're not famous, but, you know, on a, on a micro level, you know, why, I mean, the sorts of, uh, I mean, you were talking, uh, we were just talking about those fears of, you know, immigrants and so on, that you don't have to be a, a well-known uh, member of an immigrant group for someone to see you on the street <laughs> no. and think, yeah, something's good. So, um, I, I hope I, I circled around and finally answered your question. I, I think you did. I, I guess I want to point out that I do think this enemy above thing, it can still incorporate like racism and bigotry because it sounds like a lot of the conspiracy theories like we've talked about so far, it may be the enemy above, but they're co-opting the Indians, right? Or they're co-opting um, African-Americans to do the wor- yeah, do their dirty. dirty work, right? Yeah, I mean, these sort of five types are ideal types, but as I say, people constantly um, combine them. It's it's you know you have uh, theories that you know the elites are turning um, the underclass uh, you know against the hardworking people in the middle. Um, you have uh, theories of you know elites collaborating. Uh, I mean, being traitors, you know, uh, collaborating with outside enemies. And again, that goes back to um, the Indian days as well. I mean, the uh, in Maryland, I am, I'm sitting here in uh, in Baltimore County speaking to you. I mean. Uh, Right around the time of the Glorious Revolution, um, you know, there was a big rumor went around that the uh, Catholic rulers of the state um, had uh, secretly assembled um, thou- an army of thousands of Seneca Indians to uh, kill the Protestants um, in a bit of a panic, which, you know, dissipated when the mobs of Indians did not uh, did not emerge. But then there was another version of it that happened a little later. And eventually, you know, the the uh, colonial government was overthrown um, and Maryland stopped being a Catholic ruled country. So, I mean, colony. So it's a, uh, you absolutely have these combinations. um, And uh, that's part of, and not only that, but a conspiracy can suddenly change shape um, or, or gradually change shape um, over time through this evolutionary process. One example I give in the book is how the, you know, the John Birch society at the beginning of them as an organization, when they were founded in the, in the fifties, imagined a conspiracy, a communist conspiracy headquartered in Moscow, and a lot of Americans uh, were secretly, um, you know, being manipulated by it, and, and, or, or if not manipulated, you know, actively collaborating with it. Uh, a, a bit more than a decade later, the, uh, the, uh, the shape of that story had, had reversed, um, and uh, the communists were themselves, you know, being controlled by uh, capitalist forces in New York. Uh, so, you know, it, it's... All, n- none of this is stable. All of it can change. That's the way culture goes, you know. I also and, and I know that you're of a libertarian bent, and maybe this is the, the libertarian in me speaking. But part of me feels like if it's a conspiracy above, then it might be true. Like people, people in power want to have more power, right? And there is a history well, I mean, of conspiracies, sort of like so-called consp- Like there are. I guess there is such a thing as a real conspiracy, right? Like a, 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 a yeah. cabal I mean, of powerful people who do something that they don't want other people to know about in order to increase their own power or subjugate others. And I think about like the Tuskegee Institute experiments, like that, and or experiments that doctors did on African-American people, like all throughout the early you know time of medicine in America. 
And I, I discuss um, both of those in, in the book, in fact. Um, and one effect, and then one thing I say going beyond that is that the experience of those real conspiracies uh, makes people more willing to imagine further conspiracies. Um, so, I mean, in those cases, I mean, there's a whole bunch of um, conspiracy rumors in African American uh, in, in African American communities um, relating to uh, you know secret medical abuses. Um, some of the rumors that went around during the uh, Atlanta child murders at the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s, for example, which if you don't know that history, you would say that is absurd. Where, where would that even come from? But if you do know that history, you can say, well, some of these stories go over the top, but we understand you know, the, the context that led people to believe such things. I have a chapter in the book on the um, revelations of the 1970s when you had not just Watergate, but uh, the Church Committee and the Pike Committee um, you know, in the, in the Senate and the House investigating the crimes of the national security state, uh, things that the CIA, FBI, IRS, uh, NSA, and so on had done. And in that case, again, um, not only did you have uh, people willing then to imagine further CIA misbehavior that's you know, not supported by the evidence, but they feel more willing to believe it because they've just learned about some terrible things the CIA. Actually, I mean, once you've learned that the CIA has been, uh, was, you know, secretly dosing people with LSD in order to, um, to, you know, see their reactions and figure out if uh, this could be used, you know, in resisting brainwashing and so on, which was a real thing that happened and has been discussed on the, you know, the floor of the U.S. Congress. It becomes a lot easier to believe, you know, the CIA getting up to, uh, you know, other misbehavior. But it, it, it's not only did that then affect people's conspiracy theories, but it affected pop culture. You had that whole wave of um, conspiracy thrillers in the 1970s, um, which uh, were directly influenced um, by stuff that came out at that, at, you know, in, in the newspapers at that time, and which then shaped the way you know people's imaginations. I mean, once you've seen some of those movies, or you know, thrillers influenced by those movies, um, it becomes easier to imagine particular stories. Just, I mean, we're, we're constantly, um, I you know, we live in a world haunted by popular culture. Um, and the things that we watch and read are constantly shaping the way we expect people to behave. So it's really um, that sort of mixture between the stories that really happened, the stories that people imagined might be happening, and the stories that were frankly fictional, you know, created by Hollywood, the way those all influenced each other is, re is really interesting to watch, I think. I'm glad that you think it's interesting to watch because I, I would love some more discussion of that, particularly like you just described, you know, the ways that 70s um, true revelations about government working, you know, uh, in secret in the 70s, you know, created a kind of like pop culture conspiracy boom. And the pop culture conspiracy boom, you know, in turn, like get, created fertile ground for people to believe in even further conspiracies. And, or, and that all those all that feedback loop also just worked every which way. Right. I'm not I'm describing one set of that feedback loop, one one way that it goes. But I'm curious, like, do you see in American history, like, the, the kinds of conspiracy theories like rise and fall in popularity. Like you said, there's this taxonomy that you have. Are there particular eras that seem particularly fertile ground for, you know, particular, you know, to, uh, one of the one of the five kinds? They're all going on to one degree or another. Right. But certainly, I mean, wartime is always fertile ground for enemy outside theories right after 9-11 very strong time for enemy outside theories. I mean, look back at this. A, 
when you say 9-11 and conspiracy theories, people first think of like truthers and the obvious stuff, but go beyond that. Think about the uh, the mentality that, you know, the country was that was in where someone could spill a little bit of, you know, a coffee sweetener, uh, you know, in a in a um, in an airport uh, a gate. And then someone notices it 15 minutes later and everything goes on lockdown because they think it might be anthrax. I mean, th- that was the um, situ- the uh, mindset of practically the whole country at that point. Um, and we've seen small versions of that, you know, it, 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 at, at other times, too. But, I mean, that's that's definitely a historical moment. And also particular subcultures can turn on a dime. I remember um, right after Obama was elected, um, there was a whole lot of discussion of, wow, the the right wing in this country has suddenly gotten into conspiracy theories. You know, during during the Bush years, there were all sorts of right wing conspiracy theories. It's just that they weren't about the president. <laughs> they were about Muslims and Mexicans and liberals, you know. And, and it's at the moment that it's just that they suddenly became they sort of shifted from being mostly enemy outside um, and a bit of enemy within theories, you know, during the, the Bush years to being enemy above theories because um, you had a, a, a president who was uh, from the other party and, and perceived as alien in various ways. So, yeah, you, you definitely have shifts like that. Um, it's, I, I'm just hesitant to, and I don't think you're asking me to, to do this, but I, I, I'm hesitant to say, like, the country as a whole was into you know, enemy above <laughs> theories, you know, in the 70s. They got, they got more popular in the 70s for obvious reasons. Right. And I'm just sort of asking for the shape of things. Like if there's a way to look at a particular era and and say this is a response to this this thing that happened. Like or we see, like you said, there is, for instance, like historically you can look at wartime and see a particular kind of conspiracy theory, you know, gain hold, right? Um, yeah. I, as, a, as a former professional historian myself, I do appreciate... Um, Whenever someone who studied history uh, smacks down the idea that our time is particularly special, um, or that, <laughs> or that we've never seen this before, I feel like a lot of my time as an American history graduate student was spent telling people like, "No, like, yeah, this has happened before. Like, here's here's how it happened before." But now I've been out of that field for a while, and I'm wondering: do when you look at today, do you can you say this has happened before? Because I, I people feel. Like we're at a, some kind of like fever pitch of conspiracies. I think there are things that are distinctive about this time. Um, and, you know, I mean, every time is sort of a remix of all previous times. Right. I mean, that's, that's right. you know what I mean? It's, it's it, a lot of things that people think are unusual about this time are not. I, I just reviewed a, a book that, you know, sort of sketched out what it called the new conspiracism and everything they said, new conspiracism. It wasn't new. I could point to previous, plenty of previous examples. What is different about now? I mean, Donald Trump is an unusual president. (laughs) And it's not unusual for a president to believe in conspiracy theories. There are plenty of examples of presidents who've believed in conspiracy theories. John Quincy Adams was afraid of Freemasons. You know, Richard Nixon was afraid of all sorts of stuff. I mean, I could give you all kinds of examples of previous presidents who believed in conspiracy theories. Donald Trump has a distinct personality, a distinct background that are unusual. And so that the familiar uh, experience of having a president believe in conspiracy theories gets processed through the unusual um, filter that is Donald Trump. You know, I, I mean, it's very rare to have a, a um, I mean, to start with, I mean, before you even get into his um, 
his, uh, his personality, shall we say, or his beliefs. It's very unusual to have a president who is neither, who has no background as either a, um, an elected official or a military man like an, an Eisenhower. Um, so here's somebody who sort of comes into um, American government with basically, I don't want to say no knowledge of how things work or how, what kind of behavior is expected, but it's uh, a very, very limited compared to people who sort of rose up through the ranks, okay? And then add, add on top of that the fact that he got there um, by doing the opposite of what everyone <laughs> thought you had to do to become president. So he sort of feels um, maybe empowered, you know, to uh, ignore people's advice uh, about what to say in public and things like that. And then on top of that, um, you, you get to his personality. He is completely shameless. Um, mm -hmm. There are, I mean... John Kerry believes in um, believes that John F. Kennedy was killed by a cons by a conspiracy larger than Lee Harvey Oswald. And when he was asked about that as Secretary of State, he said, I, "I don't want to discuss it. It wouldn't be appropriate. It doesn't have to do with what I am. This is my own belief." It's yeah. I mean, it, it, he whereas Donald Trump is someone who not only will tweet <laughs> out you know his brain fart of the morning, and I I don't even want to compare some of this stuff to you know Warren Commission skepticism, right. yeah. Um, but then. Um, you know, on, on top of that, he's quite happy um, to you know point to the National Enquirer as a source. You know, I mean, he, he will. I mean, that I think is is probably unprecedented. I, I if you want to say what is new about this moment, I, I think I'm willing to say that uh, we have not previously had a president who, uh, you know, in public uh, for the public said uh, the reason why I am uh, casting aspersions on this person I'm running against for office and suggesting his dad was maybe mixed up with the Kennedy assassination is because of an article in the National Enquirer. <laughs> that is unusual. Um, and also what's unusual, and this also gets to his shamelessness, is his willingness to just drop that as soon as Cruz is not running against him. I mean, it, it's pretty clear that a lot of what Donald Trump says, um, he doesn't believe. Um, it's uh, or I I can't speak to his psychology. Maybe it's the sort of situational belief people have, where they convince themselves of whatever is convenient to them at that moment. So he's willing to you know not just make that sort of absurd allegation and cite it in an absurd way. You know, pointing to you know a notorious newspaper tabloid that people generally don't take seriously, even if they occasionally do break a real story. In this case, they did not. You know. Um, but he's willing to uh, turn around and have and uh, embrace uh, Cruz's uh, support once Cruz was willing eventually to support him. Or, uh, you know, I mean, he did the same thing in a non-conspiracy way with Ben Carson. He had his cast, I mean, like saying, oh, this guy could be violent and all that. And then later he appoints him to his cabinet. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, that again is Trump's personality. So those are things that are, um, uh, you know, close to unique, let's say. Um, or at least unique on a presidential level, because there are um, actual other politicians that are in some ways closer to Trump's personality. And and some of the things that were seem unusual about Trump, if you look at, for example, um, when Papio Daniel was governor of Texas in the late 1930s, there's actually some really striking parallels um, between um, some th stuff that Trump's done and, and stuff that O'Daniel did. Uh, so. Even, even, but that's, you know, it, it's different to be the governor's mansion versus a guy with, um, you know, a, a nuclear missiles at his disposal. So, and then I actually, let me, I, I'm, you probably want to ask another question, but I should throw one more thing in. Um, you were sort of asking, like, if it feels more intense now. Um, mm -hmm. 
we actually do have a data of a sort on intensity of conspiracy belief. Um, uh, two political scientists, uh, Joe Yusensky and Joe Parent, down in, um, in uh, oh, I'm blanking on which university, but it's in Florida, it's in, it's in Miami, um, did a mammoth study of letters to the editor of the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune um, from the 1890s up to, I think it was 2010. And they basically um, counted, every, I mean, in the case of the Times, every single um, letter that made a conspiratorial claim, and then the, the Tribune was more of a control group, so it wasn't every single one. Um, and they, and you, and among other things, and they also categorize them and so forth. But they have a chart which you can go find in their book, American Conspiracy Theories, which shows how many there were year by year. Um, and if you're interested in the results, there were two huge um, peaks in the 1890s, uh, sort of around the fear of corporate trusts and so on. And in the 1950s, early Cold War, fear of uh, the Soviet Union. There's some smaller spikes around uh, times like Watergate. And there's a lot of just sort of random, or it looks like it's to me like it's random noise. Um, and in general, um, with, you know, with the exception of those two huge spikes, it's, it's a pretty constant uh, middle level, which has gradually gone down. Um, from then up to when the uh, when the um, when their survey ended again, I think it was 2010. Um, so that to me suggests that anyone who says that this general period, not just the Trump era, but like the Internet era, that you know this is like a big period for conspiracy theories compared with the past. I don't think the data show that, um, and I don't think that there's a, a sort of um, big trend or a greater intensity, you know, building since we all started getting on Facebook or anything like that. But I would not be at all surprised if if they were to continue that, you know, uh, that study, you know, in another decade, if you saw another sort of Watergate or even larger spike right now um, with the stuff that's going on in, in the, uh, the culture, um, because you've got so many both Trumpian and anti-Trump conspiracy theories right now being discussed in, you know, the mainstream media by, you uh, leading, uh, you know, political and media f figures, uh, I, I would not at all be surprised if you had a, a spike um, and, and, and a greater amount of intensity. I've heard about that study. And I have to say, I feel like the only thing it really proves is that conspiracy theorizing is somewhat consistent among those people who write letters to the New York Times. Yeah. Which, well, yeah. that's part of why yeah. they have the Tribune as a... Uh, as a or who write letters to the Chicago Tribune. I mean, like... Those are yeah, pretty self-selecting groups. I grilled Joe, one of the Joes. I jo grilled Joe Yusinski about a bunch of my um, sort of other things. I was sort of bringing up as like maybe uh, a lot of this moved into talk radio at this point or moved online and so on. He had pretty good answers. I don't know if you're going to have him on the show and, and want to and grill him about that. But there are obviously you can't capture everything there. Um, yeah. But it is the biggest data set that anyone has done. I mean, there's nothing even comparable to that. And it is A, good to have data, and B, this is something that is almost impossible to quantify. And, I mean, yeah. you just I couldn't. Mean, so much of it is just, so much of conspiracy theorizing ordinarily is just transmitted orally anyway. Right. And a lot, and, and this is actually one of my big beefs when people talk about like the internet era, you know, being like a big surge in conspiracy thinking. I think the internet has changed conspiracy thinking in a lot of ways, and we can get into that. But I think a lot of what people are doing is they're seeing stuff that previously was done, you know, within a subculture you didn't enter. And now it's visible because it's happening online and you think it's new. But if you look back at um, like there's oh, I'm 
blanking on the guy's name. Um, I, I, I write about a, a sociologist who in the early 1940s, during World War II, um, went out, oh, Howard Odom, that's it, uh, and uh, was collecting you know, rumors um, in the American South, and in particular rumors about race. But this, these often were conspiratorial ones. Um, and like, for example, the idea that um, there were secret groups called swastika clubs of American blacks who were going to be set up in charge of the South, now ruling over the white man um, with the help, uh, you know, once Hitler had, had conquered uh, America. Um, now, this sounds pretty absurd. <laughs> <doesn't> <laughs> you, know? you can think of all sorts of problems with that story. But it was being spread around, and it was, uh, and we know about it not because, you know, there's, I mean, it, it's possible it worked its way into a letter to the editor of uh, a Southern newspaper, and I haven't seen that, but it's basically something that was mostly being spread orally. Um, but, and we know about it because this guy went out and collected those stories. Well, now it's much easier for someone like me, you know, to go online and say, oh, what are the QAnon people saying today? <laughs> um, and, 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 and see. And that, of course, once you're observing this, that changes um, uh, the behavior of the, uh, of the people telling the conspiracy theories as well. I mean, so, again, it changes it in all sorts of ways. But um, so I, going this back down to what you, around to what you were saying. I agree there's all sorts of stuff that doesn't get captured um, by, the, um, by uh, looking at you know, the letters to the editor of these, of these two um, major newspapers. But you do get, um, you do get number one, um, how uh, a couple of uh, significant, you, you get a measure of uh, at least how <laughs> one major... Or, you, know, you get a measure I, of something. something. You're, you're measuring it's, a thing. I'm, I'm look, a forum. That's the word I'm looking for. Forum. You know, what goes on in, in one particular forum. And also, right. you're looking at how much it penetrates the mainstream. Yes. Um, which is really important because yeah. while stuff like the uh, Swastika Club rumors, you know, or I could look at or like stuff like the... Um, the pamphlets that were sort of flooded the South again in the in the 1928 election, claiming that Al Smith, the Democratic candidate, uh, he would be a tool of the Pope and so on. Um, you know, that's not necessarily going to turn up in the New York Times uh, letters column, you know, either, you know, and it had an impact um, on uh, on the election that you can debate how much of an impact it had. Uh, so but, you know, you're, you're getting the some of the most impactful stuff when you're looking at uh, the Times and the Tribune. Do you know what the worst sound in the world is? It's your alarm clock if you haven't gotten enough sleep. No matter how much you love that song on your phone or the sound of Michael Barbaro's voice, or maybe bird song, maybe you use some sort of, you know, like sounds app to wake up. I have done that. But there is no way to avoid it sounding like nails on blackboard if you haven't gotten enough sleep. Now imagine this scenario. The surface temperature of your bed gradually adjusts to wake you up gently and naturally without the sound of the alarm. Imagine waking up rested and alert. This is not science fiction. This is the new pod by Eight Sleep. I love that they're doing so much advertising on podcasts about this. I wish there was a better tie-in. There isn't. It's just called The Pod. The Pod by Eight Sleep is a high-tech bed designed specifically to help you achieve optimal sleep fitness. There's a reason why Time Magazine calls 8 one of the best inventions of the year. It combines dynamic temperature regulation and sleep tracking to enhance your rest and recovery. It learns your sleep habits and adjusts the temperature automatically. 
That means if you like your bed cool and your partner likes it warm, now you can have both at the same time. And you do not have to use an alarm clock. Try the pod for 100 nights. And if you don't love it, they will refund your purchase and arrange a free pickup. They have already sold out of their first two batches, so they are going fast. For a limited time, you get $150 off your purchase when you go to 8sleep.com slash friends. That's $150 off and free shipping at E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash friends. One more time, that's 8sleep.com slash friends. I feel like it stopped being something I can call a coincidence that I wear Stitch Fix every time I'm doing a Stitch Fix ad, although I don't plan it. It is just that Stitch Fix is one of the places I get my non-lounge clothes, my clothes that are actually for dressing up and being in the world. And one of the only times I'm dressed up in, in the world is when I come to the studio to record this show. So today, yes, I'm wearing something from a Stitch Fix box. It is... A romper. I guess if you have long pants, there's still a jumpsuit. Short pants means romper. Anyway, it's very lightweight. It's great for this weather that is starting to turn on us. And my Stitch Fix box for this month comes tomorrow. And I literally checked the FedEx, you know, map today because I'm excited about getting it. I hate shopping. I love new clothes. So Stitch Fix is kind of perfect for me. If you don't know what it is, this has probably made no sense. It is an online personal styling service that delivers your favorite clothing, shoes, and accessories directly to you. It has brands you know and love, plus exclusive styles you won't find anywhere. You complete a style profile, and then your personal stylist will send you a hand-picked box of items based on your style and preference. They also have men's and kids' boxes. There is no subscription required. You pick between automatic shipments or getting new pieces just when you ask for them. Plus, the $20 styling fee is automatically applied towards anything you keep from your box. Discover new styles and find unique pieces with Stitch Fix. Get started today at stitchfix.com friends and get an extra 25% off when you keep everything in the box. That's stitchfix.com friends, 25% off when you keep everything in the box. Stitchfix.com friends. I want to move on to kind of current conspiracies um, and effect on uh, – it's funny you mentioned effects on elections. But I, you made me think of something when you described Donald Trump's sort of place in conspiracy culture, history, and, and it, how he is and isn't uh, unique to our moment. And what struck me was when you mentioned how easily he discards his – conspiracy theories or discards his sources, right? Like you were saying, like, once once uh, he's elected, suddenly, you know, Cruz is fine and he never mentions National Enquirer in that context again. You know, uh, once he's elected, Ben Carson is fine and never mentions that again. And part of me feels like one way of thinking about this moment that troubles me and it is sort of is, is, I think, different than what people are calling, you know, like a post-truth crisis or whatever, and like a, the problem of like, what do we believe? Because I do feel like every technological revolution has had a moment like that, right? Like my study of history is like there's every time there's a new way of disseminating information, I think people have a, a crisis of what do we believe, you know? Um, do we believe the, what, what, the radio? How can you believe something that's on the radio? You can't see it. Um, but something I I feel like I, I haven't seen in history before is a complete disregard for whether or not something is true. 
Are you talking about Trump in particular or the general population? Trump in particular, I mean, but he, I think he's modeling something that is also happening. I, mean, I don't think that's unique to his personality. I worry that that's the thing that's happening that people aren't talking about. Like, there's a lot of discussion about, like, who are the new gatekeepers and, like, fact-checking stuff. And we should, we need to create a, some, you know, official imprintur of, like, this is true and this is not true. And that stuff I feel is, I feel like I've seen before and also is kind of, I personally don't know how much good it would do. What I feel like is happening behind that is that some people are just like, yeah, I don't care, you know? I don't think that's unusual. Um, I mean, I or I, I don't think that's um, specific to our uh, historical. Okay. Um, I, I, it's, uh, I, I mean, I just, I've just known too many people. I mean, I'm speaking anecdotally here, um, but I mean, I, I've known too many people who are, um, they wouldn't necessarily say I don't care. Um, although, actually, it's funny. I was just um, last night watching um, just randomly someone linked on Twitter to Christopher Hitchens interviewing uh, a couple guys from the White Aryan Resistance in 1991. It was like, what, what on earth is this? I didn't know he ever interviewed people on TV. And he was trying to press them on, do you believe the Holocaust happened? And they were just, oh, I don't I don't care if it happened. It was, it was very, it was just... Um, it, and it was kind of this cop-out answer. Like, for some reason, they didn't want to admit it on TV as though, you know, you've... Got- oh, I don't think this is something unique to Trump. I'm saying, like, yeah. that it is something that I've seen outside of Trump, and that's what's concerning to me. That when I talk to people who, you know, believe a conspiracy or have a belief about Trump, and there's a point that I've experienced that sort of that sounds like what happened with Chris- Christopher Hitchens, which is... You know, what about this? What about this? What about this? And they're like, I don't care. I like him. Yeah. Well, that's certainly I mean, I, I mentioned Papio Daniel earlier. I mean, there was yeah. a, a great quote because um, one of the parallels is he had about as much trouble getting um, legislation through in Austin as, as Trump has had in, in Washington. I, he had the sort of uh, savant skills to get himself elected in a non-traditional pop culture centric way and then had didn't have a clue about how to govern. Um but he, uh, there was a quote from one of his fans. Let me let me try to get it exactly right. Uh, he said, I, "I might have the word slightly wrong, but he said he's a good man. It's not his fault he hasn't done nothing. You know, it was uh, it, it was like sort of like finding a way to um, uh, uh, you know make allowances for this person. And I and I think that there's a, I, I mean that came to mind because we were talking about him earlier, but." There certainly have been uh, cases where, plenty of cases where politicians were perceived as, you know, bringing home the bacon or um, standing up for an important cause for someone. And people just sort of, you know, they tried not to believe allegations about them. And if it became, came to a point where you couldn't deny it, then they found a reason not to care. I, that's just part of human psychology, I think. And it, it pops up in politics more than I think people like to admit. Again, I want to be real clear. I'm not saying this is like unique to Trump, right, yeah, 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 in yeah. any way. I'm saying like this is concerning to me more than what I think is a somewhat fake debate about news. So you're saying you're yeah. more sort of concerned about this as an ongoing problem, not as a uh, not as something yeah. that's specific something. for a moment. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly see that. Um, but, you know, I don't know if there's any way to get um, to get rid of that. I, I, I think that one reason it keeps recurring is because, you know, people have an amazing capacity to believe what they want to believe. Um, 
And you don't have to look at politics for that. I'm sure you have, everybody has at least one family member um, and their extended relatives, you know, you know, that, uh, that, you know, is, is like that. Um, so I don't know if there's a way around it. Um, it's just, you know, the question is how do you then deal with that? Um, but at, at least we can be, um, at least we can rest easily enough knowing that it's something we've always managed to survive in the past. You brought up something that I, I did want to get to. I, I've always loved the saying, you know, you can't cheat an honest man. And I wonder if there's a way that that applies to conspiracy thinking as well. Not, I don't want to have a value judgment on people who, you know, believe in conspiracy theories, but more like, do conspiracy theories capture people who already want to believe something? I think that in general, I think uh, that's not even specific to conspiracies. I think, um, um, just interpretations of the world are obviously more appealing to, I mean, I, I know that I, and I'm sure this is true of you too, as a journalist, I have to work hard not to, uh, just sort of jump on the interpretation that most fits the story that would be convenient for me to tell, you know? I mean, that's something that you've got to work against. Um, and, uh, not everybody works against it. And even if you're working against it, you sometimes fall into those traps. And it's, uh, certainly something that happens a lot with, um, I mean, conspiracy theories catch on when they fill a need. I, one of the central themes of, the, of this book um, is that, you know, even when there's a conspiracy theory says absolutely nothing true about, you know, the subjects of the theory, if it catches on, then it says something true about the anxieties and the experiences of the people who believe and tell the story. And, um, you know, I, that's, again, this is just part of our human psychology. I, we will... Uh, find um, stories that reinforce, just as we, um, we don't just adjust, we, we can adjust our worldview to fit the world, but we can also, um, uh, you know, try to sort of adjust the world to fit our worldview. I, I, that came out wrong, but I hope you know what I meant. I do. And maybe that gets us to something I, I definitely wanted to cover uh, before I let you go, which is that, um, you know, one man's uh, conspiracy is another man's collusion, maybe. Um, which is to say, it's when someone else believes it, it's a conspiracy theory, right? When I believe it, it's a plot by Russia to engineer elections in the United States. And I, I there's a there's a popular critique, I think, that doesn't really come from the right. It comes from, I don't know, intellectual Twitter, that there is as much conspiracy mongering going on on the left as there is the right. Um and I feel like that's something maybe I, w- I want to ask you about if if that gets covered in a way that is satisfying or useful. Um, so a couple of different things. I mean, I, I, first of all, like I said earlier, everyone is capable of believing in conspiracies. Right. Um, so absolutely, there is plenty of conspiracy mongering on both the left and the right. You know, I mean, the, the question that people are then sussing out is, you know, who's being who's right and who's a nut. Um, and it, I, I got to say, there's a pretty good share of nuttiness on both sides. You know, even even when there's truth, it gets buried in a lot of nuttiness because it, it's not just I mean, I said earlier, even a false story can have these grains of truth about people's experiences. The flip side of that is even a true uh, conspiracy will then uh, produce a whole bunch of dubious conspiracy theories built on it. I mean, everyone acknowledges that Watergate was a real conspiracy. There's still lots of conspiracy theories about Watergate. So there's a lot to to cut through there. Um, But then, um, oh, you said something that sparked another thought. Um, 
Hopefully more than one thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I meant something specific. Um, well, I was just asking about, I mean, t- in, in thinking of my audience, which, you know, probably skews pretty left. Um, I and thinking about myself, too. You're right. Like, um, I'm because I've, you know, worked in journalism for a long time. I have a kind of professional habit of trying to check my assumptions, you know, uh, that I am aware of that very human tendency to cherry pick data and to, you know, confirmation bias and all that. And I, you know, try to be aware. Um, but we are in a time where um, there are <laughs> there are a lot of real conspiracies, you know, or we talk about things that could be construed as conspiracies uh, uh, that happen on the front page of 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 a lot of different newspapers. And I'm wondering what kind of tools people can use to dis- to help guide themselves, to help, you know, find their way through the thicket of possible conspiracies out there. Yeah, well, with the understanding that, um, all right, well, yes, um, the usual things apply about critical thinking, checking the evidence, um, if there's a source that's being quoted, going to the source, and, and if you can yourself, because you can't, um, if it's just a quote from an unnamed official, you can't. But if if it's uh, something that, I, I know so often on, on Twitter, since you mentioned intellectual Twitter, um, something will, some snippet out of context will, uh, you know, reveal something else when you look at the, so I mean, all these obvious things about, you know, checking and, and, and rechecking and, and, and trying to find the hidden context and, and not just leaping for the interpretation that most fits, you know, what you want to be outraged about that day. Um, but having said all that, these are things that trip up the journalists who are looking into these things. Um, it can be really difficult for someone who's just a consumer and not sourced up and, and so on in these stories. Um, and I, and I, I, I say for that matter, I, it's, uh, it can be uh, difficult for a journalist who's sourced up in one area and then is looking at another one and, and isn't quite sure what to believe because that's not where the people you, um, you know, constantly interact with uh, can you know, fill you in on, uh, on other sides of the story. So I, I feel like this is not in a, a very um, satisfying answer for you. The I, service journalism portion of this of this podcast has failed utterly, basically. Yeah, basically. sorry. I, well, I, you know what? I will say in general, <laughs> part of what one thing I really don't like about uh, the discussion uh, around um, you know Russia and so on is uh, there's this idea that, uh, and it's not even I'm not even necessarily a false idea, but there's this. Notion, and this kind of gets to that you you mentioned um, that that word post truth earlier, which is a word I, I dislike because mm-hmm. it, because it, when people say post truth era, I, I try to imagine when was this truth era that I apparently missed um, at some point in the past. Um, but there's this idea that you say, well, what the Russians really want is for us not to know what to what to think, uh, for people to have this feeling of uncertainty, and there's this this feeling that. Um, you know, you know, we can be um, just sort of frozen and, and not and not even try to do things if we if we feel like we don't know what's going on. Quite apart from whether that is actually you know the aim of uh, people engaged in disinformation, it may well be the case. Set that aside. A general feeling of uncertainty and not being entirely sure what's going on, I think, is a 
good mental habit to cultivate. Um, I, I think that uh, you obviously can't go through life like, uh, you know, like the sort of radical skeptic who who isn't sure of anything around him, you know, but it's a it's it's really actually a good practice to um, to uh, consider the things that seem uh, not outlandish to you, but like outside your normal realms of belief. And also, how do I know this thing that I that I think I know? And 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 uh, if you've got um, radically different narratives and it's not obvious to you as a con- as a news consumer, which one to believe, um, it's not such a bad thing to pay attention to both of them as they, uh, both of these storylines as they develop and and uh, and leave your mind open uh, to either one or maybe neither one being true. I mean, I think, you know, this kind of radical uncertainty it's part of the human condition. We don't know what's going on. Someone who is an expert is someone who knows more than you about one thing and is still abysmally ignorant about almost everything because that's, that's just our lives. We have extremely partial knowledge and we sort of navigate through life. Um, and we do a pretty good job uh, of navigating through life. Um, you know, with these, you know, bits and pieces that we, that we can pick up and it's, um, it, it, it's, it doesn't have to be something that leaves people debilitated um, just to sort of recognize that, you know, this is true. And, and earlier we were talking about how now other worldviews are more visible because you can go online and see the rumors that people are, are, you know, passing around that previously would have been done at, you know, some drugstore you don't walk into or barbershop or, or whatever. You know, maybe uh, we're not in like this sort of maybe what's just different about this era is not that we've got all these competing realities or mental realities floating around. It's the, the fact that we are so much more intensely aware of what other ones are out there and maybe sometimes run across something that might make you question some, uh, something that you thought was a solid part of, of the world, but perhaps it was just part of, you know, the assumptions of your in group. Um, I, so again, I, I, I think, um, Again, it, it's just not in itself a bad mental habit to cultivate that uncertainty. You may not have heard of Rothy's, but I'm guessing you've probably seen them. I mean, they're all over my Instagram feed. That is the way that I knew that they existed before uh, they started being a sponsor. And then they started being a sponsor, and I mentioned it on Twitter at some point, and I got a direct message from the person who I can now name, Shannon Watts, the head of Moms Demand Action. And she said it's actually an inside joke, I guess not an inside joke so much, at Moms Demand Action that they are all Rothy's wearers. Like they'll take pictures of their feet at a march. So I'm telling you, you don't need my opinion. If Rothy's are the shoes that the women trying to change gun laws in America wear for their marches, I think they've got to be good. I love my pair I have a pair of the loafer kinds. They also have a, a sneaker style and a flat style. They're stylish and versatile. They go with everything from yoga pants to dresses and skirts. They have a wide range of colors and patterns. They're available, I guess it's four different silhouettes. So sneaker, loafer, flat, and there must be one I'm missing. They are made from recycled plastic bottles, so you can feel good about them in that way as well. There is zero break-in period for these shoes. And another major bonus, and this I really like in the summertime, they are fully machine washable. Every time you need to refresh them, just toss them in the washing machine. It is like getting a fresh pair every laundry day. So check out all the amazing styles, including that one I couldn't remember right now at rothys.com slash WFLA. 
T. Again, go to Rothy's, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash W-F-L-T to get your new favorite flats. I should mention Shannon Watts is going to be on this show next month. Maybe I'll have her do an ad read with me for Rothy's. Stay tuned and go to Rothy's dot com slash W-F-L-T today. So it's funny, the ad copy they send me for Third Love is the same every time. But since I genuinely love my Third Love bra, I get to sort of make it up each time because I always have something new to say about it. The only thing I will vary from the ad copy they have given me is I you, I personally do not forget I have it on. But I think that's a good thing. I don't want to forget I have a bra on. <laughs> It'd be like forgetting you have clothes on. I mean, you don't think about it, and that's cool. But, you know, you don't want to accidentally not wear it because you've forgotten to put it on and you don't notice that you don't have it on. Anyway, what I love about Third Love today is that their bras are very pretty. It is now sleeveless weather in Minneapolis, tank top weather, um, the weather where you're probably going to have your bra strap showing whether you want to or not. So you might as well have some nice bra straps. They have a new bra that has like sort of regular straps on the front And then on the back where they're on top of your shoulders and down, it's a lace triangle. So it looks very much like you're, you know, wanting to show it. It is a choice that you are showing your bra. And I personally think that is always better than making it look like your bra strap slipped. They do fit great. I discovered through love that I am a half-size bra person. I, I already knew that the my girls were two different sizes, um, but now I have a split-the-difference kind of size. And honestly, the two third-lip bras that I have that are in that half-size, I wear a lot more often than I wear my other bras. You can take a fit quiz at thirdlove.com, answer a few simple questions, and you will get your perfect fit in 60 seconds. Over 12 million women have taken that quiz to date. It is, they say it's fun. I'd say it's interesting. They have some interesting comparisons for how you describe the boob shape. Bell is mine. Each customer has 60 days to wear, wash, and put their bra to the test. If you don't love it, you can return it. Third level, wash it and donate it to a woman in need. Fit stylists are also available every day via text, chat, or phone. Returns and exchanges are free and easy. And again, the returned bras go to a woman in need. Third Love is an industry leader with 70 sizes, including those signature half cups. Hands down, this is the most comfortable bra you'll own. Again, most comfortable bra I own. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash friends to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash friends for 15% off today. I think Jesse laid the groundwork for our larger discussion of conspiracy theories at this moment. And Parker, unfortunately, will bring us news of, like I said, an actual conspiracy whether or not you think of it as one, that the Trump administration is perpetuating against trans people. Parker Malloy, editor-at-large for Media Matters for America. Parker, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So the main reason I thought of you for this week, besides always thinking of you, is that, you know, two years ago, you were warning us about how bad the Trump administration was going to be for trans people. And you were told you were being alarmist, right? Uh Like that sort of, you've said this, and I sort of remember, I remember getting called alarmist about the stuff I was worried Uh about. 
Um, and well, <laughs> it's never fun to be Cassandra. Uh, but I'm wondering what your perspective is from that time two years ago to now. Like, sure, you didn't want to be right, I know. Yeah, sure. So, so basically, you know, as as you were saying, I was kind of um, predicting that the the Trump administration would be more or less a a total nightmare for transgender people, and people responded, as you were saying. Um, by by saying, oh, you're you're being ridiculous. Like there were there were com- there were people comparing this to, you know how people will careless kind of like clearly not being serious. They'll be like, oh, I'm going to Canada. It's like, no, you're not. Um, but they they kind of lumped pe- me in there. They were like, oh, what do you think this is going to turn into Handmaid's Tale? Oh, you think this is gonna, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Can't you see that Trump? Trump respects uh, LGBT people. He said it during his during his speech, and he held a flag. And what more do you want? And you know, and and I, I kept trying to make the point to people that that when he was, whenever he would he would cite, you know, when he he sputtered out the LGBTQ community during his uh, during the RNC speech, uh, that was in the context of talking about the pulse the attack the pulse nightclub attack. And so basically it was him saying that he he would protect the LGBTQ community from a hostile foreign ideology. Basically he was he was using that to to say that you know to to spread his anti-Muslim kind of views. So he was really just using us as a prop to attack someone else. Um and I kept trying to point that out but people kept coming back to this, "Hey, he said it, isn't that good?" And the same thing I saw this week when um you know, after he tweeted uh, something about as we celebrate LGBT Pride Month or something like that, there were there were people who were like, hey, that's pretty cool, right? And I'm like, no, I don't care. Honestly, I really don't care if 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 he tweets ab- about these things or if he or if he puts out a, uh, a a White House official note about Pride Month. That doesn't that doesn't matter to trans people. That doesn't that probably doesn't matter to most most LGBT people you know it's um it's it's kind of meaningless and i get that it while it can be a nice gesture if the actions that you know uh underlie that are are hostile it doesn't mean anything and in fact it's it's insulting and i think that my, my response was was kind of uh when i saw that tweet was was filled with at least two expletives i think so you know it was it was like i can't believe this guy um but that's that's kind of been uh been been the case in the past couple weeks have been really really bad for uh for trans people especially because you had um you had back on may 24th the uh department of health and human services released a a rule to essentially amend the uh, Affordable Care Act, the non-discrimination portion to say that it does not cover transgender people and um, that doctors can turn people... So basically, giving doctors the green light to deny coverage to trans people, to turn trans people away, to basically not treat us like human beings. Uh, and the way that they rolled this out was explaining this like, hey, doctors shouldn't have to perform transgender specific surgeries if they don't want to and 
I mean, that's not that's not something that's happening. It's not it's not a real problem. They're they're rolling this out saying that that's the problem. But the thing is that these surgeries are so specialized that the only people you would ever ask to perform them are specialists who who decided they want to do this for trans people. So this is really just about giving your average doctor the go ahead to uh, to go, ew, I don't want to deal with you. And there are all these stories out there from, from years past about trans people who've, who've been denied very, very basic care. And it's really scary. And you see that you see these stories out there about, uh, something like 30, 20 or 30% of trans people in the past year have either had a bad experience at a doctor or have, put off going to the doctor because they're afraid of having another bad experience. So it's it's something that is uh, is really scary. And while I think I will personally be okay with in with all of these sorts of rules that get rolled out that are that are harmful. Another one is a, uh, a, a about housing discrimination and public housing. That probably won't directly affect me. And the the healthcare one might not directly affect me either as I'm I, I I work for a place that, that pays me and is fine with me being trans. I live in Chicago, of all places. I am white. I am middle class. You know, you, you there are all these things that I have that are, that really are privileges. And that, that insulates me a little bit from some of what's to come for uh, for other other groups of trans people, especially you know, trans women of color who are at risk, most at risk for new HIV infections, um, poverty, homelessness, all of these sorts of things. You've got the the military, the housing, healthcare, and then just today uh, there was an announcement that the Trump Trump administration was cutting AIDS funding or HIV funding. <laughs> so you've, you've got this, this situation where everything that can go wrong for, uh, for trans people kind of is. This is really a worst case scenario. Yeah. And I also want to just pin uh, something for people where you said this, this uh, rule that doctors don't have to provide services to trans people and make very clear, you know, this isn't about getting like, you know, Doc Wilson down the street from doing gender reassignment surgery, right? Like that's not. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> that wasn't no, happening before. You weren't going to Doc Wilson for gender reassignment surgery. Um, this is about allowing doctors who feel icky about trans people to just not treat them at all. And I, I want to just say point out something because you've said it before, and I think it's really – I don't know if people realize the depth of importance of this, that for trans people going to the doctor in the first place, even if it's a completely like non – you know, even if there weren't legal issues, like it's kind of fraught to begin with, right? Like you've spoken about that before. Like it's a very vulnerable thing to do. My primary care doctor is at the local LGBT clinic, and I still feel awkward and sometimes not super comfortable there. You know, that's that's the best possible scenario. But there is a there's a situation. There was a a, f a few years ago. What was this? this was in. Uh, 2015. It wasn't until 2016 that the Obama administration clarified you can't discriminate against trans people. Um, it, it took that long to, to kind of get that through. So there was this transgender man, so someone who was assigned female at birth, um, who 
went to the doctor because he had a lump, you know, lump lump on his chest and and went in and they did a a, a mammogram and a biopsy and he he didn't receive any test results so he assumed everything was fine because generally no news is good news when it comes to doctors. Um and so he finally gets a call a couple weeks later saying, hi, I was just curious how you were doing with your diagnosis. And so he says, what diagnosis? And then it turns out that his doctor didn't call him. And it turned out that he had very aggressive breast cancer. And his doctor uh, said, let's see, his, his doctor ended up saying that, uh, you know, the, I have a real, real problem with your transgender status. And then when I found out you were transgender, the first thing I wanted to do, my first impulse was to send you to psychiatry. So this was someone, and this was in New York. This was in Manhattan. This was not, not in the middle of nowhere. So this was, this was a situation where a man had cancer and wasn't being told because the doctor was grossed out by him being trans. And that's just horrible. And that shouldn't happen. And that has happened so many times to so many people in the, in the past. And you'd like to think that these things are things of the past, but they can come back because discrimination comes in all sorts of forms. And sometimes it's not super obvious either. It, it's making someone wait an extra hour in the emergency room waiting room. It's uh, not calling them and telling them about a diagnosis. It's not getting them uh, quick treatment when they're in a car accident on the street. These sorts of things, they matter. And if you are in it, are the administration and you keep signaling that, that trans people don't have rights, that we don't have legal protections, that there are no repercussions for treating us poorly, um, then people are going to take notice. And you've, you saw that with the, with the trans student memo that got kind of walked back, you, where, you, where you saw that, that happen. And then trans kids started getting bullied more and, because they are getting this message from the government saying, hey, it's okay to bully trans kids. Hey, schools, it's okay to not protect trans kids. So you have teachers treating them differently. You have schools, you have students teaching treating all of all of these kids who just want to live differently and it's so exhausting and now you have uh there's a case in front of the that's going to be heard by the supreme court about a trans woman who was fired by a funeral home for coming out as trans and the whichever way the supreme court rules on that which is likely to say that trans people aren't covered under existing laws, uh, even though other courts have been finding that the Supreme Court's getting very uh, Trumpified. <laughs> um, that's that's going to have a big, big effect. That's going to send a very clear message that trans people don't have uh, rights in when it comes to employment uh, one, once and for all. So so all of these stories are out there and they're very, very scary. And the downside, the, the scary thing, just, just like really quick, is this is that it's not being covered in in the news very much at all. <laughs> yeah, I feel like some of it gets like flashpoint coverage, like uh, the bullshit Trump said today about how trans people um, shouldn't be allowed in the military because they take prescription drugs. Like because we're all like fascinated by the, the oaf in the Oval Office – I think like his particular misstatements get covered as though like, look, Donald Trump did another stupid thing. Mm -hmm. But the systemic part 
of of what the Trump administration is doing. I think this is true overall, by the way, of like how the Trump administration gets covered. It's like the daily tweet fart, right, is is headlines. The systemic rolling back of protections of trans people, of people of color, of disabled people, of women, whatever, like that doesn't get the same kind of attention. You know, like it's all just like we cover the pratfalls. We don't cover the totalitarianism. <laughs> sure, and and there was there was a uh, there was a story. What it came out uh, last week about about what's going on at HHS right now, and basic in the headline, it's it's from Reuters. It's as Trump rewrites health rules, Pence sees cons- conservative agenda born again, and they they talk about how everything is uh, is every Trump's Twitter provides perfect cover. So here's a quote from the article. It's one of the benefits of Trump's Twitter approach is it creates headlines. And that's what it's intended to do. And underneath those headlines, everyone else in the administration can go about peacefully doing their job, said David McIntosh, president of the Conservative Club for Growth and longtime Pence friend. HHS, and then his quote continues, released very released several very important significant regulations that changed the nature of Obamacare, of healthcare, with very little coverage in the press. So right there, you have you have someone who's who's very close and very involved in all of this saying flat out that that part of their their goal of getting these radical policies through is that they're hoping that people won't really pay attention, that they'll pay attention to the tweet fart, you know, that they'll they'll pay attention to that. And so at Media Matters, um, we we did a we did a little study. Our LGBT team did, did a study on the coverage of the uh, the HUD rule that would allow federally funded homeless shelters to deny admission um, to trans women, uh, the HHS rule about healthcare, and then also the um, rule put out by uh, or that's Axios reported that will affect. Um, federally funded adoption agencies, giving them the the ability to deny uh, adoption to LGBT people. And so those three policies, they're all very, very, uh, you know, important. And so between May 22nd and May 31st, we monitored the broadcast networks and the cable news networks. And in total, there was 11 minutes of coverage total. There was there were zero minutes of ABC, zero minutes of CBS, zero of MSNBC, and zero of NBC. CNN covered these three policies for seven minutes and thirty-two seconds, and Fox News covered them for three minutes and twenty-six seconds, which was mostly an interview with Ben Carson, where he just lied and said that this was about protecting everyone or being fair to everybody was his quote. So the we have data that shows that these these stories aren't being covered. Uh, we know what happens when when these policies get implemented, and we know that not covering these stories is part of their of the Trump agenda. That's important to making it work. And yet, we're, we're talking about the the tweet controversy of the week, or something that is petty and bad, but doesn't necessarily no one no one will die because of it. Um, you know, like the 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 ordeal with the ship named after John McCain. That's that's terrible and it's petty and all of that. But did it need to be like a three day story uh, at the expense of these other stories that that affect people's 
everyday lives? Probably not, where the administration admits it and then they don't, and then it's back and forth. And, wh- and what what's really um, frustrating about all of this, so much of this, is that uh, you don't see this talked about on these Sunday morning talk shows. And, or when you do, it'll be someone there from something like Focus on the Family or the Family Research Council. You'll, you'll have this both sides kind of approach to it, where on one hand, there's all this propaganda, and then on the other, they treat someone saying exactly what these rules will really do as just another both sides, uh, he said, she said kind of situation. I think another reason why the paucity of coverage here is alarming is that people don't make a connection between these rules and A, the everyday lives of trans people, right? And B, another systemic thing, like the systemic rollback of everyone's rights. You know, like it may start with trans people or be (laughs) they may be at the tip of the spear as far as like, I don't know what the right metaphor is, but this is the thing that the administration is doing to all kinds of vulnerable groups and all the the coverage never is about what's happening to the vulnerable groups. This is something we've talked about in the show before, but like it's also parallel to the coverage of white supremacy in the mainstream media, which is to say white supremacy gets covered as a thing that white people are doing, you know, and sometimes it's covered critically, sure, but it's not covered as a thing that's happening to people of color. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's just, right. look at these terrible Nazis. And you know what? They are. They're terrible. And we should know about them and they should be covered. But yeah, sure. look at these people who are the subject of this, not just this terrible Nazi person, but the systemic you know, oppression that's happening, right? Like, this isn't just a case. I think that when we focus on white supremacy and white supremacists, again, they need to be covered. But when the focus is on them, it allows people to think, well, those are the people who are the problem, right? Like, it's just the Nazis that we have to worry about. And no, (laughs) no. I mean, the thing about the the trans issues, you've said this before, like you're enabling bullying in general, I would say. You know, like you're sending a message that not only you know, not just trans people are okay to bully, but people who are anyone you think of as weaker, smaller, different, like they don't that we our society isn't set up to protect them. And this is a you know, this is a your your discomfort is reason enough to be oppressive. Yeah. Well, and and I so I was I was talking with someone the other day about um uh, I, yeah, I won't. I won't say who. But anyway, I was talking to someone who who, work, who works in media. Um, what they what they thought the overall kind of plan of this was of of all the all the LGBT rules that were being introduced, and they said, "Oh, I think I think it's just tr- Trump wants to roll back everything Obama did." And I said, "No, that's not it. It's it's way way more than that. It's uh it's 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 about implementing these sort of policies that." Um, you know, when you when you look at the the bigger picture, these aren't isolated incidents, as you as you were saying. These this is part of a larger plan, a larger uh, movement. As these rulings that will come in, because every everything that's going to happen is going to be challenged in the courts, and sadly, the courts are increasingly being being run by by uh, activists, you know, right wing activists. So so you've you've got that, but when you combine this with when you look at what's happening right now with abortion and what's happening with um, 
uh, enforcement of, uh, you know, rolling back the title, the Title Nine uh, school um, rule that that had to do with not, uh, you know, not having disproportionate punishments um, on the basis of race. So you've got that. You've got uh, you know, what's happening with abortion, you've got what's happening with trans people, you've got the, the religious exceptions for discriminating against, uh, against gay people, that's all, all happening. And if you, if you want to know how we, how we get to, um, you know, to go back to the Handmaid's Tale, <laughs> if you want to know how we get to Gilead, it's, it's not just the abortion stuff. It's, it's this broader picture. It's about creating, creating a world where there are very, very clear hierarchies. And you will have trans people essentially made to feel as though we can't exist in public if you if you make it if you make it illegal for a trans person to use to use the bathroom they can only leave their home for as long as their bladder will hold if you um, you know if you make abortion illegal and punishable by um, you know and punishable by twenty years in prison or whatever it is uh, then you're going to have doctors afraid to treat pregnant women or so you've got all of, all of these things are happening right now and i think a lot of people are seeing them as totally disconnected from one another and i think that that's why that's why right now it's it's more important than than ever that journalists especially connect these dots this isn't i, I get that it kind of sounds you know as, as i as i say all of what's happening out loud it all sounds very hyperbolic but at the same time it's not. <laughs> um, it's yeah. This is this is all. These are all things that are actually happening. The the administration in the HHS rule, for instance, included a line that said uh, it made a reference to Title Nine uh, having a. It was the administration's position that Title Nine does not protect trans trans students, but it protects other students from trans students. So basically, it was the argument that that trans students are inherently a threat to other students and other students are protected under non-discrimination law from having to even possibly share a restroom facility with a trans person, even unknowingly. To the extent we can, I would like to turn to maybe slightly less dire outlook or, or subject, which is the Democratic candidates. What do you want to hear from them that that would give you a sense that they understand the, the scope of the problem and that things have a, a, at least a chance of getting better? What are the kinds of things you want to hear from, from the possible nominees? Yeah, I, 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 want, I, I really want to hear, because the courts are going to be so extremely important in coming years, I, wa I want to hear about plans for uh, what's going to happen with the Supreme Court or what what they will look for in judges. The one thing that Trump did that was actually, I think, pretty smart on his part was he put out a list of judges that he uh, that he liked and conservatives looked at that and they were able to say, see like, oh, these are the people he'll put on there, which was put out there to uh, calm people who were afraid he was going to put Judge Judy on the bench or something like that. So I, I think that something like that would honestly be somewhat helpful or at least put out some parameters. I want to hear that that these candidates know that these problems exist and that they matter. And even if there's, whether there's one trans person in the country or 100 million of us, there's 
we should all have the same rights and the same goes for any other group and that they that they care about all Americans all people in the country and I think that that's that's going to be important and to not downplay the problem after the 2016 election there were a lot of there was a lot of hand-wringing about whether identity politics cost Clinton the election which obviously they didn't um if uh it was just it was a way to offload everything onto marginalized groups and I think that a lot of there there's been a lot of reluctance to kind of dive into that but there's an active attack happening on on the rights of some of the most vulnerable people in the country right now and I think that it can't be it can't be under understated and so I I really appreciate it when I do see a candidate who will say that it's that a specific administration policy is not not right or not fair and to call that out even if it's obvious that you know that they would they would oppose said policy are any of the candidates talking about trans rights in a way that you appreciate because I feel like it hasn't been like you said like coverage of this issue just doesn't really break break into the mainstream very much um so who's who's talking about it in a way that you that that again like we could be a little bit at least find a model for if not actually be hopeful for. sure I think I, I think that uh Pete Buttigieg had a um he he had a really good good answer during a CNN town hall a couple couple months back I think about tr- talking about trans people and employment discrimination. He had a great answer on that. Um, you had Kamala Harris kind of uh, t- step forward and talk about um, her ever evolving position on sex work and trans rights t- together. You have um, you know, and she doesn't have the. She, yeah, she does. She doesn't have the 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 best track record on either of those issues, and whether people want to trust that, that's up to them. Elizabeth Warren is very out out front with that. Uh, Joe Biden kind of fumbles that a little bit. He he suggested recently that um, that if trans people something like we need to get Trump out of there, so trans women of color, which is great that he he notices this or he's told about this, um, so they stop getting murdered. It's but at the same time, while he was vice president, this was still an issue that was going on. Getting Trump out of there isn't some magic, uh, magic bullet, you know. But at the same time, Biden wrote a really thoughtful introduction to this trans woman, Sarah McBride. Um, she used to work for his son, Beau. Um, he, Joe Biden wrote the introduction to her novel, or not novel, her um, memoir. And, and it was very, very thoughtful. And it was... It was exactly the kind of thing that I would want to hear from candidates. And, I, and that was when I was still working at Upworthy, and I wrote a piece about that. So um, if someone, you can, you can search and you can find this passage that I thought was very thoughtful at the time. But it seems like he's kind of, uh, I, don't, I have no clue what he's running on. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if he knows. He's running on being Joe Biden, no. basically. He's Joe Biden. He's, he's, he's the onion character. <laughs> yeah, he's running on being Joe Biden the meme. I think. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, this is this is actually conspiracy month here at with friends like these. Okay. And I've made a point of highlighting how I think we should be um, not so quick to brush off all everything we hear. Um, that maybe sounds crazy as a conspiracy theory. Like I'm in favor of actually considering it for a minute. You know, like let's think through it. Because as as deeply as American as American history is is 
woven through with conspiracy theories, it's woven through with conspiracies, like active conspiracies to harm people who are marginalized, already marginalized. Um, the Tuskegee experiments, um, Japanese internment camps, those are my two top you know, examples. But you know what? This seems like a conspiracy. I mean, like I, I'm not, I hope you realize I am not belittling or marginalizing this by saying it's conspiracy to, to uh, you know, eliminate trans people. I think that is actually what it is. Yeah, I mean it's on it's on the Family Research Council's website. <laughs> um, they they have like a five a five point uh, plan to to essentially wipe trans people off the uh, off out of public life. And that and in in this the case that I mentioned earlier about the woman at the um, funeral home, the law the lawyer representing or from Alliance Def- Defending Freedom, which is the right wing religious lawyer group, um, said that it was that. Discriminating against trans people is 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 uh, something that's done out of love to try to discourage us from being trans, which is not how any of this works. So, it, I mean, it's it, it's a conspiracy, but they're very they're they're pretty open about it. They just know that not a lot of people care. And on, on the topic of conspiracies, I um, if you haven't read, uh, have you read uh, Republic of Lies by Anna Merlin? That just recently. Oh, she, that book is so good. I like that. That was one I went through in like a day. So um, I recommend that. <laughs> um, so thank you so much uh, for being with us. Yeah. I actually, before we wrap up, I have another question. How are you holding up, Parker? Uh, up and down. Um, I recently started with a new therapist, which is um, we, Kayla and I recently moved uh to to a nice nice place that i that we both enjoy and my room is quieter that i can i can record in um less background noise here but um yeah i've I've been having somewhat of a rough go of it because sometimes some days i wake up and i see uh get a push notification telling me that my my rights are being rolled back and then when i go to talk about it on twitter i get a bunch of people saying your rights are not under attack you know and and i feel like sometimes i feel like i'm losing my mind and that's uh it's very frustrating and at the same time i i don't like being um you know i'm not i'm not an activist i'm 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 a writer i'm a i i i, I, I journalist ish <laughs> um but it's uh it's it's something where increasingly i feel like i need to to point these things out and talk about trans issues even though that's not the focus of my life and i don't want it to be the focus of my life um and but it's a matter of life and death i mean yeah it's it's something that i feel like i have to use my platform i, I have to use my my platform to not just for myself, but to, to help others. And I've been trying to do more behind the scenes kind of help with, you know, when a journalist writes something about trans people and it's maybe not super great, maybe just sending an email being like, hey, if you have any questions, I'm around. <laughs> you know, just kind of like, if you need to know how to phrase something that's not gonna have Twitter yelling at you, I'm here. I'm trying. Thank you so much for being on the show, Parker. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Always, I'm always happy to be on. And that is it for the show. Please take care of yourselves.